Welcome to the Cultural Life of the Nobel Prize in Literature podcast, where we explore the literature prize's social, ideological, and institutional functions as the most recognized literary honor in the world. Amidst mounting skepticism towards the legitimacy and credibility of the Nobel as an arbiter of global literary excellence, its status as the preeminent literary prize remains. However, our understanding of the uses of the Literature Prize's prestige has yet to be fully fleshed out. We believe it is important to think about what we stand to gain and lose by preserving the global significance of the Nobel. So in this podcast series, we speak with scholars and writers from around the world to discuss the Nobel Prize in Literature's prominence as a signifier of meaning, a structuring of discourse, and even a narrative motif in different cultures and societies. Welcome to the Cultural Life of the Nobel Prize in Literature podcast. Today we have Yukiko Duke. She's a well-respected cultural critic and journalist, as well as the artistic director of Stockholm Literature, which is a yearly international literature festival at uh, the Moderna Museet, which is Stockholm's modern art museum. And she's also the editor of Swedish literary magazine, uh, Vila Seer. Um, so yeah, uh, Yukiko, maybe we can start off by just asking you about some general observations about the role of literature and culture in Sweden. Do you have any uh, observations about this? Like, what's, what's it like, the literary scene over there? We are a reading people, uh, the Swedes. So the most uh, annoying question you can pose to a Swede is, <laughs> uh, do you have uh, a subscription for a newspaper? Uh, and everyone will say, yes. Uh, but the subscription rate in Sweden is going down. And this is also the case with reading. If you ask someone, are you reading something at the moment? They will all say yes. Uh, but in fact, they're not. So uh, what we see is um, the sales of books going down for every year. Uh, also, the rate of, of um the, the use, usage of, of uh, public libraries is going down, and this for every year. Um, and of course, this, is, uh, this has to do with uh, all kinds of, of different ways of uh, getting um, cultural information. You can look at the internet, you can watch Netflix, uh, you don't have to read anymore in order to, to get um, stories. And this is something I think we share with most of the Western countries. Mm. This, um, but what happened, and that is actually rather uh, interesting, when the pandemic broke out in Sweden, uh, you had this enormous surge in, um, in sales, uh, sales of books on the internet. Mm. So all in all, I would say that uh, the pandemic made people realize that literature actually plays a big role in our lives. Literature is a source of information. It's also um, a way of connecting with times past. Uh, it's a way of, of uh, learning about the world, learning about yourself. So I think that literature actually has a small boost <laughs> at the moment. You mentioned basically that there's no really big problem in terms of reading. Like everyone reads, everyone's very has a habit of reading. Can you explain a little bit as to where does that tradition come from? 
I think it has to do with um, the long tradition of social democratic rule in mm. Sweden. So uh, very early uh, in the turn of the last century, uh, you'd have different reforms for schooling, which meant that um, uh, all Swedes could read. And this, I think, was the literacy rather early on was 100% in Sweden. And this meant a lot. And so when you had um, the social democratic rule for 40 years, you had an enormous emphasis on schooling, on giving every child a chance to, to reach academic, uh, academic education. And this, I think, was, was a very, very uh, huge factor. It meant a lot for, for reading literature as well. Yeah, it's interesting because like in Hong Kong, I mean, we, we, we started having like this compulsory education uh, for all kids up to like grade, like prime, uh, form, form three, form four. And so we do also have this strong educational background and literacy rates, right, in Hong Kong. But we ask a, a regular Hong Kong person on the streets whether they like reading, they probably say no. And yeah, like people call Hong Kong a cultural desert, basically. You know, no. they either call yeah they either call <laughs> Hong Kong as a cultural desert or a cultural oasis. Well, the cultural desert side is easy, right? Just saying, well, nobody reads, therefore it's uh, or nobody even cares about like high culture, and therefore there's a a lack of audience or market for that stuff. And then there's also a cultural oasis narrative because there is culture. It's just so happened that because it's so barren, the state, that whenever there's something that comes out of this barren state, it has to be like a miracle. So it's like s- such a miracle to have something out there. Um, so yeah, it's, it, it's I, I'm wondering that it's also because like in Hong Kong, we are we have such a strong emphasis on finance and you know business, we're like a economic hub, commercial hub. What about in Sweden? Do you think they have a different positioning? Is that also the reason why? Maybe we don't have this strong emphasis on on uh, economy, even though of course economy is interesting and and is uh, is a base, a foundation for the society. It's not that strong an emphasis. It's not. You don't have to succeed by getting rich, if you understand what I mean. This is not uh, the main goal for a person here. But maybe I was thinking now. But is is Hong Kong really a literary desert? That's a good question. I so hard to do. I have so hard to to imagine this. I mean, uh, if you look at the Chinese tradition of literature, I mean, this is one of the one of the pillars in 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 literature. And it's so hard for me to to think that Hong Kong or even uh, any other part of China would be would be uh, a literary desert. That's a, that's a good question, right? Like, so some people would tackle this as a myth, right? By saying, okay, you're just really limiting the definition of culture, you know, like, so you you can have like high culture. So you think of high culture as, okay, you have to read the, the classics or you have to read uh, because like, we're a British colony. So Shakespeare and, and you know, Western culture and stuff like that. Um, but then Hong Kong is a really strong uh, commercial based cultural sector, right? Like entertainment movies and stuff. So obviously that's part, that's culture as well, right? So you can argue 
there's still culture in Hong Kong, but not just that type of culture that we think is quote unquote educational, useful, you know, healthy for you, whatever. Um, so there's that what that way to uh, explain that um, label. Um, but yeah, I, I agree with you. I think it's a it's it's a myth more so than something factual. I'm sorry. There's there's some like construction work going on upstairs. <laughs> I guess well. I have to edit. Yeah, I'll, I'll try to edit this out as well. But um, yeah. Um, so yeah, I thank you for uh, the insights about the Swedish scene. Um, and that's something I want to further ask you about, right? Because Sweden is the home of the most prestigious literary prize in the world, which is Nobel Prize Literature. So what do the Swedes think about the Nobel Prize Literature then? Well, um, as you know, it's handed out by the Swedish Academy and the yeah. Swedish Academy was founded in 1768 by uh, the then King Gustavus III. So for a very, 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 very long time, the Swedish Academy has been a very, very influential cultural institution in Sweden. So I think, and the Nobel Prize, of course, it's the, <laughs> it's the price of prices when it comes to literature. So um, it's something that Swedes look forward to, you know, when, when in October, when, it's, um, uh, when you get to know who the new uh, Nobel Prize winner is. Uh, it's always, it's a literary event. But compared to earlier, I would say that the Nobel Prize does not have the same grade of, of interest as it used to have. And this has to do with a lot of things. It has to do with um, a lot of Swedish literary prizes that are um, influential for the Swedish literary scene. But also, of course, with what happened in 2018, when we had a huge scandal, uh, which really, really shook the Swedish Academy. Well, it had to do with the Me Too, the Me Too wave sweeping all over all over the world, also in Sweden. A husband of one of the members of the academy was actually uh, abusing young women that used to uh, work at his cultural club, which also, by the way, was an influential scene for literature in Sweden. Well, um, now the discussion went on and on what to do with this man, what to do with his, with his wife. Uh, would, she be, would she really be a good member of the academy? What should be, was she to be kicked out of the academy? How to do? Um, this was shaking the academy from within, but also from the outside, because I think the general interest in having the academy as, you know, uh, an institution above all kinds of Me Too discussions and whatnot was very strong within with the Swedes, I think. We want to see the, the academy as an institution placed all over all over all kinds of doubts and all kinds of affairs of different types. And now we were in the midst of a Me Too affair within the academy. So uh, it took the Academy quite some time to sort of clear its name, which it did eventually. So I think it's back, basically back to business now, but it took a long time. And the reputation of the Academy has been tainted a bit, I would say. And we also had earlier on when Salman Rushdie 
received a fatwa, the discussion within the academy was what to do. Was the academy, which is supposed not to take any political stances at all, was the academy to say something about this? Was it to to support Salman Rushdie in some way? And uh, three members of the academy left because the academy uh, decided not to do anything about this. So they left in protest, and this shook the academy on one level. But the Me Too thing was even worse. You mentioned about you know the Me Too scandals of 2018, but also earlier you have the Rushdie affair, and um, like you mentioned, both incidents tainted the the reputation of the Swedish Academy. And some readers outside of Sweden, you know, they would start reflecting uh, whether we need the Nobel Prize literature, or at least um, should we start to reflect on this unparalleled prestige that. Uh, the Nobel Prize confers, uh, and also uh, the sort of authority that the Swedish Academy has. Um, I'm wondering, like, do Swedish readers have these considerations as well, given, uh, you know, its structural flaws? They have, of course. Mm. They have, especially after, I think, the, the Rushdie affair. Um, but also because, you know, I've understood that in the world, I mean, the Nobel Prize has such an authority, such a weight, but in Sweden, it doesn't have really that weight. Mm -hmm. It's a huge prize, of course. It's the most prestigious prize uh, you can get. But in Sweden, we have several different prizes uh, that are maybe, how shall I say, reader-wise, seen from the perspective of a reader, uh, maybe easier to to consider as something for me, something I can read during summertime, for instance. Very often, I mean, you have two categories of Nobel laureates. You have the storytellers, such as uh, there's a lot of them. For instance, you have Ishiguro, who's a storyteller. But then you have also people who write different kinds. They write, um, they're language innovators. They uh, tend to use the language in, in interesting and new ways. And this, this category, the language innovators, tend to be difficult to read for an ordinary reader who wants a good story. Uh, and thus, for Swedes, I think there's equal between Nobel laureate, difficult to read. So, yes, it is a prestigious prize. Yes, it is very important for the Swedish uh, booksellers. But is it a huge prize for the Swedish general literary audience? I don't think so. It doesn't have really that weight. But of course, I mean, it's more a question of how does Sweden look from the outside? Uh, we have this enormously prestigious cultural institution that we Swedes are proud over. And we have these cultural institutions, institution being tainted by one, the Salman Rushdie affair, uh, which was a question of, how shall I say, cultural bravery to be able to stand up for what the academy is supposed to support, which is freedom of speech and free, intellectual freedom. And they didn't do that. And for many Swedes, this was shocking. And secondly, you have... Uh, the Me Too affair, for us being a society where equality is very important, something we have struggled and fought for, where women are rather strong, 
for us, the, the Me Too affair was something also very shocking. And in a way, I mean, it was, as we say in Sweden, you would pull down the underpants of, of the Swedish Academy. And this was something we didn't want to see happening. So more than a question of has the Swedish, has the Nobel Prize being tainted by all these affairs, it's a question of being of the Swedish Academy as a cultural institution being tainted, and thus, secondly, the Nobel Prize as well. But um, it's more the question of, of the institution for the Swedes, I think. When you mention, you know, how the Swedes also feel somewhat shocked, even ashamed about or disappointed at Swedish Academy and mm -hmm. how they are so openly criticizing it. I feel like that's really the, the definition of a democracy, right? It's like you're, you're allowed and you're willing and you're eager to point out, you know, what is wrong with any establishment, right? And I really think that is something, you know, that's precisely why I think around the world we are very so much looking forward to and invest such confidence, right, in this, the Nobel Prize or Swedish Academy, because you guys are willing to own up to, you know, mistakes, yeah, even though you, you make mistakes, right? So I think, yeah, um, th that's something... We don't want to make too many mistakes, though. <laughs> but I mean, like, like, these things happen, and I think... What's so interesting is when people outside of Sweden, they look at this and they say, wow, okay, these are these, you have make these mistakes. You have these like very structural flaws um, that are beyond repair, it seems like. So for example, you know, people talk about Nobel Prize as very Eurocentric and, you know, and like these structural flaws and they say, okay, probably we shouldn't keep this anymore. And when I see this, I, I feel like we should keep it because first of all, we, we still have this belief, right? That, you know, like this type of neutral and gold standard of literature should somehow still be strived towards it, even though it seems like an impossible task, we should still strive towards this ideal. And I really think that the, the Swedish Academy and Nobel Prize represents that ideal. Do you, do you think that's also something the, the Swedes um, are thinking about? Like they have this responsibility? Yes, I think that, that they feel this responsibility and they're very, very much, um, they do understand that there are certain flaws within, within the academy. Also when it comes to structural things, like for instance, I mean, we, we are so in desperate need of translated literature uh, because the academy, as you know, the academy gets all kinds of information from all over the world, different um, uh, pen associations, uh, writers associations, uh, former Nobel laureates can promote people they think should have the Nobel Prize. So they can, they can uh, point out candidates worthy of the prize. Uh, and sometimes, I mean, we have writers in languages we can't read in Sweden. And then the, the academy can order translations in order to be able to read this certain writer who is promoted by someone they trust. So, for instance, Nagib Mafus, the Egyptian writer, uh, didn't have one single work translated into Swedish. But the Swedish academy understood that the, Arab the Arabic-speaking world was almost unified in its strive to, <laughs> to get the academy to understand what an enormously important writer Mafus was. 
So um, in order to understand Mafus, they had him translated in, I think, four or five works. And then they succeeded in finding works in some other language that they could read. But this, of course, I mean, there are limits within the academy. The academy has members who can read many Western languages, not so many Asian or African languages, though. And this, of course, well, one can understand that the weight, the overweight for for Western literature is tremendous. So you have to do something about this. And the Academy is trying to work with this. And they have started to have a sort of network in the Swedish academic world where they have people picking up writers from different parts of the world just in order to try to do something about this. And, um, well, I think one choice which was a bit surprising for most of us was Goerner, last year's Nobel Prize laureate, whom almost nobody knew of in Sweden. And he is, of course, he's writing in English, which makes it much more easy. Uh, but even so, he was he is a, a Tanzanian or Zanzibarian writer, and we don't read many of those in Sweden. But the Academy is, is actually, is in different ways, struggling to, to try to get some sort of a balance between the Western world and the world outside the West, and also between men and women, because the overweight in male writers is also very big, as you can see if you look at the list of Nobel laureates. Ah, it's, it's interesting, you just mentioned how uh, the previous Nobel laureate Gubar, he is nobody really reads him in Sweden. Um, so uh, the Swedes writers, the readers, they, they find this a surprising choice. I'm wondering, do Swedish readers expect the Swedish Academy to somehow reflect their taste when they are selecting the Nobel laureates? You mean if the, the Academy is, is uh, in some way reflected in the choices reflecting uh like the, the swedish the general readers. audience yeah the general audience no 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 like, no, 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 no. Okay. They, they're above that right uh, right, right they're yeah. only supposed to to look at uh, literary uh, qualities uh, and also the weight of of uh, the works of the writers and when i say weight i mean um, when it comes to uh, in some way being able to write something about the human existence of the world as it is right now or has been. And that is, suppose, I suppose, uh, what the Academy looks at. Because it's interesting, because in, in, in Alfred Nobel's uh, will, Alfred Nobel, as you know, he was uh, the invent a, a very important inventor in the turn of last century in Sweden, and he invented, for instance, the dynamite. Uh, and made a huge, huge uh, fortune out of this. And it's part of this fortune which is used for handing out the Nobel Prize. Uh, in Alfred Nobel's will, it says it's a, it should be given to the person who has written the most important literary work during the last year. So what is the most important literary work? How are we to think about this? How, how are we to, in some way, also think about Mr. Nobel's will, <laughs> what he wanted? Uh, but the Academy, I think, um, is thinking of, of the Nobel Prize as a prize that should be handed out for a, a writer who has come 
somewhere in, in his or her literary career where you can see that he or she is um, able to write not only technically interesting works, but also when it comes to how he or she writes about human existence and what the world looks like. Uh, so I think there are certain points that are checked uh, when you choose a writer. And if you look at the list, most of the writers are writers that we, I think we all can agree are uh, writers that are quite readable even today. If you look back in time, they have a literary quality. So, but would they reflect the Swedish general audience? I think you'd have many crime writers, you'd have, <laughs> <laughs> you'd have writers of romance, uh, and it would look in a completely different way. So I don't think that the, the Academy cares that much about what the general audience reads or thinks about their choices. But within the Academy, of course, you have had, you've had different wills. You have, for instance, um, And this is interesting. When you have somebody who is very knowledgeable about a certain part of world literature, we had, for instance, Mr. Joran Malmqvist, who was a famous sinologue. Sin sin do you say sinologue or do you say sinologist? Uh, sinologist. Sin Sinology. Yeah. Yes. Uh, who was a famous sinologist in Sweden and very knowledgeable about Chinese literature. And he, for instance, pushed for Mo Yan. He pushed also for Gao Jinjian, who I know you know very much about. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and these two Nobel laureates, I can say with almost 100% certainty, were pushed very strongly by Mr. Malmqvist. And we have, for instance, Garcia Marquez, who had very strong friends in, in the academy, people who were knowledgeable about Latin American literature. Would we have in the future perhaps somebody who knew very much about African literature? We would surely have more African laureates. Mr. Vespay, who who's been the one um, who's been really uh, the person talking about African literature in the academy, is now very very old, and I don't think that he is that capable anymore of of really you know vigorously pushing for a candidate. But he, I think, was the one who who pushed for Nadine Gordimer, for instance. So depending on who is within the academy, you have also a sort of a power play between Latin America or Asia mm -hmm. or uh, Germany or France or whatever. The academy members are humans. <laughs> you know? I, I've been reading some of those uh, reports about the The, the scandal, right? And you, there's also mm -hmm. manifesting in the uh, like a factional struggle between different uh, members of the academy, um, which I think that because of the struggles and like you mentioned, there's so many different considerations. Sometimes when it's like it's so difficult to predict like who is the next Nobel laureate because of those uncertainties. And yet, um, if we go back to the most recent Japanese-born uh, writer to win the Nobel Prize, Ishiguro. Um, I I think critics generally agree him to be like a popular choice, right? A popular Nobel laureate choice who is uh, beloved by both critics and masses from around the world. Can you comment a little bit about what makes Ishiguro so well received universally? Oh, I think it's easy. I think it's yeah. because he's such a talented storyteller. Now, as I said earlier, the Nobel Prize laureates tend to be of two 
categories. You have the storytellers and you have the language innovators. The language innovators uh, are read and loved by a very, very, very small percentage of readers, whilst the storytellers are read by many and also are very easy to to um, get a liking to if you haven't read them before. And I think for for many, many readers, Ishiguro was almost like a household name, you know. Um, his uh, works have been filmed and so on and so forth. Many people have either watched the films or they have read him. Um, he's easy to read. Um, his stories are interesting. They say something about the world, something about us humans. Uh, and he's not, he's not difficult to read in any way. Uh, and this, I think, makes him a very popular Nobel Prize laureate. Sometimes when people are too, when writers are too easy to read, uh, they don't get the prize. <laughs> Graham Greene, for instance, was on the list for I don't know how many years, but he was always considered a little bit too popular, meaning maybe a little bit too uninteresting from the academy's point of view, uh, not innovating enough, and so on. So, I mean, you have many people on the list who maybe, uh, for instance, you have, um, oh, <clears throat> the American writer, uh, the woman who writes so many books. Uh, Joyce can... Carol Oates. Yes, Joyce Carol Oates, that's it. So Oates and Atwood are two writers who I am sure are on the list every year. Mm but are considered a little bit too popular, perhaps. Uh, they have a little, a few too many works, maybe, too. So you can always be criticized as the Academy for uh, giving the prize to a person who uh, maybe doesn't really work. How shall I say? They, they tend to, to pour out works. And now this is not that good, seen from the academy's point of view, which means that you don't really try to, how shall I say, need the works the way you should be needing them. You're also uh, very active in studying Japanese culture and society, and you've also written books about Japanese history and culture, and you've also translated works by Haruki Murakami and also uh, the Nobel laureate Kenzaburu Oe. I'm just wondering from a translator's perspective, um, what do you find unique about these writers, or just perhaps even contemporary Japanese literature in general? If one would discuss Murakami and Oe, I would say that these two men are from two completely different generations. And, uh, but they do one thing, uh, both of them, and that is they are writing about Japanese society, and they are very, very successful in trying to hmm, difficult. Um, well, when it comes to Murakami and Oe, they belong to different generations, but they are very good at expressing what goes on in Japanese society. And they're also very good at, at showing the dark sides of the Japanese mm. society. When it comes to Oe, he was a child during the Second World War, and he saw the modernization of the Japanese society. And if you look at his works, there is, there is an element of anxiety, which you have also in Murakami's works. And this is something I think the modern Jap Japanese feel. They feel this 
a sort of very strange anxiety, which they can't really pinpoint. They don't know where it comes from. But if you look at Orr's works, it's it's the description of a society uh, which has become modern a little bit too fast. So people haven't really coped with the different things going on, the different chance, all the, the ways. They haven't really coped with the way in which the society is changing. It's changing much too fast for them. So their mindset is a traditional one, and yet they're forced into some sort of a modern living. And this is something that Oe explains, I think, very, very well. When it comes to Murakami, he's the generation after Oe's, and he's born into a sort of gap which uh, was created in Japan after the Second World War, where young people don't have any connections whatsoever to traditional culture, and yet they don't really feel like they're a part of this new modern society and very Americanized society that they're living in. And this also creates a sort of anxiety. And Murakami is uh, writing wonderfully well about this, I think. You always have young men in his books who don't really seem to have any place at all in society. They are drifting in a way. And this, I think, is, is what very, very, very many young Japanese feel, a feeling of not knowing where they belong, uh, just, you know, drifting along and not really being able to, to choose what kind of life they would like to lead. So this, this, is, this concerns Murakami and Oe, but now you have also a very interesting wave of young Japanese female writers uh, Hiromi Kawakami, Mieko Kawakami, Yu Miri, Yoko Ogawa from a, a bit older generation. There are so many names I could give you of, of young or middle-aged Japanese female writers. And they are actually more writing about maybe the underbelly of Japan, things we haven't read about earlier, what it's like to be Korean-Japanese in Japan uh, always feeling the racism lurking at you from every corner, or being Mieko Kawakami born in a poor town, trying to make ends meet, having abusive fathers, mothers who don't care or are working too much to be able to care for the children. Um, this is a Japan we haven't read about earlier, but now it comes forward very, very beautifully in these people's works. Thank you for listening, and we hope you have enjoyed this conversation. You can learn more about the cultural life of the Nobel Prize in Literature at nobelculturallife.wordpress.com. Please also subscribe to our podcast on Spotify. The Cultural Life of the Nobel Prize in Literature podcast is hosted by Michael Kachi Turk. The production team is Wilma Kamala, Brian Cheng, Mandy Lau, Sade Wong, Audrey Chan, Celine Wong, and Gwen Wong. <laughs>